Christian Community, Part 1 If we Christians fail today to proclaim the gospel of Jesus with sufficient conviction and enthusiasm, it is due above all to our forgetting that the very essence of our meaning is to exist for others. The Church does not exist to perpetuate itself, to guard itself against injury, to increase its own security. It exists to lead others into an awareness of the redemptive love of God in Jesus. And insofar as it does really exist for the other, the Church is invulnerable, triumphant. You are the light for all the world, Jesus told his disciples. When a lamp is lit, it is not put under the meal tub, but on the lampstand, where it gives light to everyone in the house. And you, like the lamp, must shed light among your fellows, so that when they see the good you do, they may give praise to your Father in heaven. If the world does not believe what we say about Jesus, what we say about the reality of the human spirit, is it not mainly because they do not believe that we really believe it and know it? It's not enough to turn our minds to changing the image of the church in the world, to be constantly thinking, what effect will this have? What impression will that make? We have to begin not by changing the image of the church, but by rediscovering ourselves as the image of God. There is only one way to do this, and it is the essential means of shedding the light with which the church is entrusted upon everyone in the house. And this is the way of prayer. The means in this matter, as in all, have to be conformable to the end. Our Christian communities do not exist for themselves, but for others, ultimately for the other. And in our prayer, we have to discover ourselves existing for the other, because it is in prayer that we experience ourselves being created and sustained by Him. In our prayer, then, we let God be. We rejoice in His being as He is. We do not try to manipulate Him, to harangue Him, or to flatter Him. We do not dispel Him with our clever words and formulas, but we worship Him. That is, we acknowledge His value and worth. And in doing this, we discovered that we, created in His image, share in His value and worth as sons of God. Everyone has experienced at some time in their lives, when they're with the person they love, or perhaps at a time of deep sorrow or pain, that there is a peculiar power in silence. Silence comes naturally at times of great significance in our life, because we feel we are coming into a direct contact with some truth of such meaning that words would distract us and prevent us from fully entering into that meaning 
and the power that silence has, is to allow this truth to emerge, to rise to the surface, to become visible. It happens naturally, in its own time and fashion. We know that we are not responsible for making it appear, but we know it has a personal meaning for us. We know it is greater than we are, and we find a perhaps unexpected humility within ourselves that leads us to real, attentive silence. We let the truth be. But there is also something in all of us that incites us to control the other, to defuse the power we dimly apprehend in a moment of truth, to protect ourselves from its transforming power by neutralizing its otherness and imposing our own identity upon it. The crime of idolatry is precisely creating our own God in our own image and likeness. Rather than encounter God in his awesome difference from ourselves, we construct a toy model of him in our own psychic and emotional image. In doing this, we don't harm him, of course, as unreality has no power over him. But we do debase and scatter ourselves, surrendering the potential and divine glory of our humanity for the false glitter of the golden calf. The truth is so much more exciting, so much more wonderful. God is not a reflection of our consciousness, but we are his reflection, his image, by our incorporation with Jesus, his Son, our brother. Our way to the experience of this truth is in the silence of our meditation.